This is RDQI. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Bill Swirsky's Auto is located in Aurora, Illinois. We got all sorts of cars, automobiles, things that move. Take you to work. Come on down to Bill Swirsky's Automobile now. Ryan, is bread good for you? Oh, man, I think so. I mean, for me, <laughs> per, for me personally, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, so far as I know, do not have celiac disease, so I'm not I'm going to struggle with that particular aspect of my biology. And besides the fact that bread is delicious, I think it's just fascinating to make it and all the different ways you can use it. And plus, I love beer, as we've talked about a lot on the no. show, apparently. And beer and bread are... They're really close to each other in a lot of ways. But how about you? Do you think bread's good for humans? It's, I think yes, but I also think a lot of people, a lot of people would say no to that. Um, Sure. You know, the bread is like a refined carbohydrate. You know, it's a white carbohydrate or a white starch. Um, there are tons and tons of diets out there that exclude any kind of white carbohydrate. Sure. Bread being like the prime example other than maybe pasta. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It, you know, we, we, tend to, we tend to oscillate between demonizing different ingredients in especially Western culture. Yep. So, yep. I mean, I remember growing up, um, all of a sudden, you know, not really understanding why, but all of a sudden fat was demonized. Yeah, so it was the worst thing in the world. This low fat. Yeah. And like, you know, that's margarine. I grew up on margarine and, you know, like low fat stuff and it yep. was awful. And, <laughs> and little, little child Dave, just, he was just so upset. What's happening <laughs> with the world? Give me back my, the stuff that tastes good. And one single tear fell off his cheek. Yeah. <laughs> But but now, you know, as we talked about last week, fat is not really demonized anymore at all. In fact, there are diets like, you know, the keto diet that are rely on like 80% fat the consumed, you know, as a, as a percentage of what you consume on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think right now, carbohydrates, whether rightly or wrongly, are kind of being demonized against um, as, a, as like a weight management tool, but also as, you know, like a reaction to this gluten intolerance, which seems to have just pervaded the culture. Yeah, really, really um, quick, just though. seems strange. Really yeah. quick, though. Gluten intolerance. Because I feel like that those two words get bl- bandied about very, very carelessly. That is distinct from having celiac disease. So what is gluten yes. intolerance? So celiac disease is... I can't remember if it's if it's like an allergenic reaction. Um, oh, I looked it, it up. A, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want me to go through it really quick, I can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so basically, listeners, really quick. Gluten is made up of two different proteins, gliadin and glutenin. Okay, now those two things, um, these protein structures, which of course are just links of a bunch of amino acids, that's what proteins are. 
What's cool about them is that they're, you know, protein structures, amino acids, they are linear, but the way that they actually are shaped in the physical world, they kind of curl up and coil up and, you know, are springy and bouncy. You know, obviously in this case they would be. So then when you're working flour with water and then you're kneading the dough, the reason you need the dough is because you want to elongate these molecules. Because once you elongate them, then you can give structure to the dough. Kind of like if you were camping and you forgot your tent poles at home, the tent is going to be useless, right? Like the fabric is there, but it's loose, it's floppy, it's not going to give you a structure. So if you need dough, you're just giving the dough structure. So then, again, celiac. There's some of these amino acids, particularly in the glutenin chain, I believe, if I remember correctly, that basically the small intestines will have a adverse reaction and the body will say, oh, this is um, either a parasite, this is an infection, this is something bad. And so it'll, that's why it's called an autoimmune disorder. Basically, the body thinks that something it's probably normal for it is actually a threat, therefore triggers inflammation, causes a bunch of problems, even though there's really no um, particular reason. Now, I shouldn't say there's no particular reason. There is a genetic basis for this. There are also environmental factors for this, for celiac disease, that's what I'm talking about. And it's incredibly complex and we're still learning about it. That's what celiac disease is in a nutshell. Gluten intolerance to me seems more like a, I feel a little bloated after I have a cracker, so I don't want to do that anymore. That's kind of the take I have on it. Yeah. I mean, there could be, gluten could be causing harm to your digestive system. <clears throat> but it's it's completely separate from celiacs in the way you just described it because celiac is essentially your immune system misidentifying an input as a threat. Right. Whereas gluten intolerance is is you know it doesn't make me feel fantastic <laughs> afterwards. Um but so so you know celiacs I think is some very tiny small percentage of the world population. Yeah, right? 1% I think is what I was my digging found about one in one in 100. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, you know, I think everybody listening to this probably knows a few people, several people at least who, who in their lives, who, who avoid gluten, um, that sample size just doesn't track, right? Like there's no way all of those people have celiac disease. Mm -hmm. They have a perceived or real gluten intolerance. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that trips me up is that for so much of human history, the majority of people, particularly in, um, in, in cultures, you know, in basketball cultures, uh, where basketball <laughs> bread basket cultures, you know, that primarily grew wheat, they existed on, you know, a diet primarily consisting of bread, right. Mm -hmm. In the form of, you know, fermented baked wheat um so how is that possible then <laughs> right right it, it just doesn't make sense where you know i mean i guess life was not all that pleasant in a lot of ways you know 100 years ago minus um but it would have shown up in the literature right like hey why you know this nomadic meat eating culture they seem to be fine as soon as we get down to agriculture now everybody's you know gluten intolerant that sure doesn't, it doesn't make sense Right, right, right. Yeah, and that seems like a, to the casual observer, someone who maybe hasn't read into anything or researched anything. Yeah, I can see how you'd be like, whoa, 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 wait. All of a sudden, you know, all these new methods of food production 
or new ways of consuming food and we're getting sick. Like maybe it's just the fact that we're overeating bread. But then you do the research and look into it and most people who study ancient peoples and what they were doing say, uh, no, they're eating bread every day. It's subsistence for them. So this, I mean, you know, you and I were for a long time have been interested and fascinated by this problem. Um, I think, I think it, it, it's good to point out at the beginning that there is considerable amount of research, um, but none of it is really conclusive and it is contradictory. <laughs> it right. can be contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the best explanations that I've heard is uh, Michael Pollan's book, Cooked. One of the chapters is on fermentation, and he talks about um, gluten intolerance in the context of the you know last 60, 70 years of American food production. Um. And, and really the, the way that American industrialized food production, I wanted to use a different word, but I got nothing, how American industrialized food production basically eliminated several steps of the traditional bread-making process in order to fit the production into an economies-of-scale type of model. And his theory, again, a theory, is that this is what's driving this gluten intolerance. So before 1950, bread was flour, water, and long fermentation times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a baker, um, oh, I can't remember his name, we can put it in the, in the show notes, um, out of Boston. And... Um, he he basically explains this concept that if you give somebody a bag of flour and water, they won't be able to survive on that, right? Like we can't digest pure flour. Right. But mm-hmm. if you combine the flour and the water and you bake it and you use it, you ferment it and then you bake it, it turns into bread and you can survive on that indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But that's I mean let's let's think about that for a second though. Because I think most people think like, oh, if I had flour and water, I could survive on a desert island, at least long enough to like until rescue came. But probably not. I mean, A, because you probably wouldn't be able to bake it because you're on a desert island, unless you fashion an oven somehow. But excluding that fact, mm. I mean, fermentation is the key to this process. And I don't know, you're going to have, I'm going to have to lean on you for the bread fermentation part. I'm much more familiar with the process that um, brewing, beer brewing goes through to allow barley and wheat and other grains to be able to be fermentable. Um, yeah. And I'm sure they're different. I'm sure they overlap in some areas. So can you, can you school me a little bit on bread fermentation? Yeah. And I think it's good to, to kind of frame this, this explanation in the basis of the history and the difference between old school fermentation um, or sourdough fermentation and the, you know, new school fermentation of like quick rise breads, mm-hmm. right? So, <clears throat> um, for you know much of human history, we realized that wheat is not palatable by itself, right? It's it has very little nutritional value. Mm-hmm. But, and this happened in Egypt, um, probably somewhat well, concurrent with beer, right? Well, I mean, that's again, I've talked about this a lot, but there's a big argument was that was beer first or was bread first? Like, were people making bread to then create beer first? Or, anyways, it doesn't matter for the sake of this conversation. 
Yeah, so I won't sp- not specifically somewhere. Somewhere somebody left a bag of flour um, exposed to some water, exposed to some air, and they came back and it started bubbling and they thought, okay, well, let's throw this in the oven. Um, that bubbling is is fermentation. And what that is, there's no, you know, we think of bread right, think of bread baking now as you combine flour, water, yeast, and salt. Um, yeast, to have, to like actually have the, commercial yeast that we have today that we can add to something that didn't exist we (laughs) used yeast that was you know naturally occurring in the environment so if you leave flour and water out natural yeasts in the air will you know find that and start consuming the sugars and and consuming a lot of the things that we as human beings can't break down internally but these bacteria and these yeast can break it down and they produce all of these other you know gases and different acids and amino acids and things that are really, really nutritious for us. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, this fermentation is sort of what gives bread. First of all, it's what it, what breaks down the things that are hard for us to digest and gives it its nutritional value. Now what commercial bread making has done is said, okay, that process takes a long time and that's not super efficient for selling bread to the masses. So they produce this commercial yeast that could rise, you know, like leavened bread very, very quickly, get, you know, flour from its flour state to a state in which we could bake bread really, really quick. The problem is if we do that very quickly, doesn't allow the dough time to ferment. And so you have a lot more of that indigestible stuff still remaining in a finished product. So mm-hmm. Michael Pollan's theory is that the reason why we have gluten intolerance today is not, it's not psychosomatic like, you know, you and I probably thought several years ago. Um, it's real, but it's because we're eating this, this like half fermented or quarter fermented product um, that really is in a very small way toxic to us. Yeah. I mean, here's a really easy visual that I'm pretty sure everyone's experienced. A day or two after you've eaten a corn and cob, you happen to look into the toilet after you've voided, and you're like, oh, there's corn in there. It's because your body cannot digest that corn. Having said that, if you take corn, you grind it up, you mixtamalize it, which is a process I do not understand, and you turn it into masa, and then you take that masa and you make corn tortillas, you don't see corn tortilla in your void. You know what I mean? So there's, mm-hmm. there has to be a chemical process. The chemistry and the biology have to change for us to actually access the nutrients, basically. Yeah. Nixtamalization is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but I love masa, so I know I love mixtalization. <laughs> it's basically they, they, they learn how to do it by soaking corn in wood ash, um, <laughs> which is very alkaline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so fer- fermentation is is a like a chemical um, transformation in the same way nixtamalization is. But fermentation is like it's it's like these living organisms. So it has this different kind of connotation. Like nixtamalization is just pure science, like pure mad chemistry, mad scientist. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Whereas fermentation is more uncontrollable. I mean, that was my biggest frustration in brewing beer. Is you basically brewing beer, my perspective was you go through this very elaborate, long, exhausting process to create this liquid that is basically just sugar water. It's more than that, basically sugar water. And then you pitch a vial of yeast in it to inoculate it to make sure that only this particular yeast is consuming the sugar. Um, 
unless you're doing like a, a sour beer and then you would openly ferment it kind of like sourdough. And it can be so maddening when that yeast just, apparently it's like, oh, it just decided to die. It didn't want to ferment this time for whatever reason. Then you have to rack your head like, wait, I just spent six hours making this liquid. What did I do wrong? It's so frustrating when you get it wrong because it's so uncontrollable. Yeah. But that's kind of the beauty of fermentation is it, it enables us to absorb nutrients that we need to live from foodstuffs that aren't like the, they're all locked. Like, so all these carbohydrates and proteins and amino, like the various components that you need from wheat, they're all locked up in there. And if you consume it, the enzymes in our body, the amylase in our saliva, the amylase in our stomach, etc. Actually, I think amylase is just in the intestine. Anyways, it can't break it down quickly enough. So <laughs> It never gets absorbed into the body, and then you end up just passing it right on through. Um, so if you're even if you not don't have a gluten intolerance, even if you don't have celiac, you're still not really getting much out of this bread per se, or that you know in this case that kernel of wheat, just because our, our bodies physically, biologically cannot absorb this material in its current fashion. And that's why I love yeast. It says, "Hey, humans, don't worry about this." We're just going to sit around for a little while, chew on all these complex carbohydrates and make them much easier for you to consume. And everyone loves it. Like both sides win, in my opinion. Yeah. And and in the process of brewing beer, you know, you still it still requires a long fermentation time, whether you use commercial yeast or whether you use wild yeast. I don't, have you ever brewed a, a Brett beer? No, uh, personally, I have not. Uh, I did have a chance to meet the head brewer of... A brewery in Chicago based in the plant, and he showed me their cool ship, which is an open fermentation stone, basically. So imagine a giant stone vat that has a no top on it. And yeah, it's, mm -hmm. that was the way they that's the way they do it. Like a, a Saison, a farmhouse beer. Typically that's the style. It's openly fermented. Right. Yeah. But I've never personally done a bread. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to do. So so Brett is is like it basically this this brewer's term um for Bretanomyces. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. how it's pronounced? I don't know. Um, Either way is good. <laughs> but it's wild yeast, right? It's the same way that you would start a, like a, a sourdough or a levain in, in French. Like mm -hmm. you know, you basically leave flour and water out on your on your porch, and wild yeast come and basically find it, and and that's how the fermentation starts. And the same thing with with you know Brett beer. The thing is it's really difficult to control. I mean, you know, beer, like you said, is hard to control in the first place, but it, when you use commercial yeast, you've got a little bit more control over one of these variables. Brett beers are like all over the place, but you still have that long fermentation time when you're using commercial yeast for beer. When you're using it for bread, you shorten up that rise time where fermentation doesn't actually occur. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's just it's just creating gas so that the dough itself rises. It's not it's not the full pro it's not the full beans. You know what I mean? Actually, the U.S. government in the '60s they realized that this you know white bread um, didn't have any nutrition and like people were kind of getting sick. Um, so they actually started fortifying the bread with like, mm -hmm. minerals and vitamins and things. Um, because, because they couldn't, you know, well, instead of just going back to the way things were done, let's just put vitamins into it, which, you know, is healthier in a little bit, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really zero in on the actual problem itself. And that's, you know, kind of, kind of what we talked about in the organic farming episode that, 
you know, food production, unfortunately, growing it, cooking it, producing it, it takes time. And we try and impl- apply these, you know, very rapid economies of scale industrial processes to the food system. And everywhere you look, it just causes so many more problems than it solves. The only thing it solves is that it can produce a bunch of this toxic crap really quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Might wanna. I mean, and obviously having gluten intolerance or being intolerant to gluten on any level, even if it's psychosomatic, I don't care. To you, it's real, right? So it doesn't matter. Or having celiac yeah. disease, like obviously this is not a good thing. Having said that, so is the other bad thing on the table would be starvation and mass starvation. If we were to go back to complete organic farming, like if we could just like flip a switch and just go to organic farming, we would lose a lot of people off the the face of the earth. It just, it just would happen. So there's a reason for it, but now we're dealing with the problems that we've created, so to speak. I, I also disagree with that statement, provided that more of the labor force would have to shift from, I don't know, procurement or, you know, finance to agriculture. Um, but I mean, I, I personally believe that we have more than enough arable land and, and, you know, soil nutrition to feed the entire world off of organic farming. It's just more labor intensive. That's just the reality. Mm, Okay. I'll let you go with that one. My, I think, (laughs) I think my, I think I was trying to imply, like if we had to flip the switch like that, there would be economic repercussions that we wouldn't be able to deal with yes i'm talking about like you know this perfect state where if we could immediately move all of the people to where they needed to be yeah no problem but like the reality of doing that is you're you're correct it's impossible we would a lot of people would die so michael Pollan, like you know i follow i haven't read that book i've seen his netflix series which is based on the book everyone should check it out it's a really easy way to digest some of the baseline material i'm sure the book is far more interesting um, digest. <laughs> that's how books work usually. Funny how that is. And he, he kind of, his postulate, or he is postulating that the way we go about producing wheat-based foods is problematic. And he actually brings up some other things in terms of the diversity of our diet becoming less and less and less diverse, which touches on the microbiome, which I don't think we really have time to dive into too much here, <clears throat> even though the microbiome is incredibly important to anyone having with gluten intolerance or celiacs. Um, but do you think that we could re- like we could find a way to produce bread on a, in a different scale using traditional fermentation methods and keep up with the demand for this food stuff? I think it's I think it's a very similar problem to the problem that we were discussing in the organic farming episode. The catch 22 is you know we have a global economy that requires big scale productions and the economies of scale that come with that. Um you know the fact that something can be grown and shipped halfway around the world very quickly um is based on this system from agriculture, from the growing of the, the crop to the production of, or, you know, the, the processing of that for, you know, the end consumer. It's, it's all, you know, that requires all of these shortcuts that we've taken. So there are 
a lot of bakers out there who, you know, do this long fermentation sourdough. Um, there's a lot of growers out there that do organic permaculture type farming. Um, but they're really niche players. They're kind of relegated to the fringe. They're this, you know, artisanal movement. And the only way they survive in our current economy is by charging a premium because they don't have those economies of scale because you can't have economies of scale when you need to ferment wild ferment bread, right? I mean, it's just, it's so, it, you know, it requires a, you know, a true master craftsman um, that understands and has fermented so many loaves of bread to really be able to control and consistently put out a product. And even then, it's not terribly consistent. It's not consistent in the way that consumers demand today. So I I think it's, I think it's possible, but I, I don't know how to get there because we're so, we're just going so far down the path of like, look, this is the way our system of trade works. Now we don't have room other than as like an artisanal sort of discretionary income type of product. Mm -hmm. Can we get, you know, wild fermented bread to the masses? Not the way the world is set up right now. Yeah, and that's such a tricky point. Um, it, it almost sounds like we need to find new technology for us to properly ferment bread, expedite the time, and also make it an, a scalable process. I don't know that that technology exists. I don't know that anyone's even thinking about that either. Huh. I mean, this has been a this has been a human long, civilization long problem, though. I mean. As you know, Dave, I like to read through ancient history for some reason. And they're constantly talking about the issue that is usually mostly commonly recorded is how high are the granaries? Like how 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 good is our food stock? Because um you know, when people go hungry, they don't really believe in the political structure anymore because clearly the political structure isn't working. So it's usually the first concern. Um I'm just thinking of all the Egyptians and all the, the Greeks and the Persian Empire. And if there's ever a grain issue and they can't import it from a foreign market, there is always, always civil unrest. And I mean, you could see that even recent in modern history. Yeah. In the past 50 years, there's so many examples we could pull on from here. Um, a lot of the Arab Spring pieces were, were driven by bread shortages. Mm hmm. Yeah, or the rise in the price of bread, um, either one, which I guess a bread shortage would elevate the price. Come on. <laughs> right. We, we, yeah. did a, we did a whole podcast about that. <laughs> yeah, like eight hours on this, right? Come on. <laughs> oh, man. So that becomes a thorny issue. And I think, unfortunately, like, there's a part of me that wants to say, like, yeah, let's go back to the old ways. I just don't think that going back to the old ways, and those are in air quotes. You can't see me, but they're in air quotes. I don't think it's possible for humanity to do that without a lot of pain and suffering and death. So <laughs> I'm hoping that people are working on ways to figure out this process or to enable us to create our bread products more like the old way in terms of how it affects our body. 
That's a really good point because elsewhere, I forget which podcast it was, but you and I talked about sort of the danger of the of thinking that, you know, there was this rosy golden age of the, you know, the old days, you know, which everything was just perfect. Like, that's just not the case, right? Ever. Yeah. yeah. You know, you your bread was fermented and it was very nutritious, but, you know, you also still died at the age of 35 for a number of other reasons. Right. Actually, Dave, you're mentioning an episode we never released. It was the memory episode. Um, so oh, we'll, was it? Yeah, oh, so wow. now we'll have to go back and do that well, one. And It was not releasable. We were not on our game that day. <laughs> uh, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, damn okay. it. <laughs> um, but there's, okay, so, so kind of a, a brief... Um, not going totally into it, but you know, there, there is a, in a lot of different ways and avenues and areas, there's, there's always this kind of like this idea that, you know, things are worse than they were, you know, 50 years ago, a hundred years ago. And that we want to go back to this, you know, this golden age where everything was rosy. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just really taking a very, very naive surface level, approach or, 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 you know, understanding of like what this golden age was, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody really knows because nobody was around back then necessarily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, my personal opinion is that, uh, it's, it's just rarely it's it's you know focusing on the one percent of things that might have been better and ignoring the ninety nine percent of the ways that life has improved. Right, um, right. It's like, hey, do you want cholera? <laughs> then let's not go back to the old days. You know, like there's so many things that we've advanced through. And and you know, I, I say that with a with a. It sounds a little bit critical, um, but I'll be the first to admit that you know when I when I was younger, I felt that way a lot. Um, and you know, in terms of agriculture, as I'm sure if you listen to, you know, the last couple episodes that you and I have done, I sort of still have that mentality about a lot of things regarding food. Um, and, and I don't think that, I think a lot of that, sometimes I get carried away and I definitely felt much more strongly that, Oh, you know, agriculture used to be this, this, you know, glorious, wonderful thing that worked so well and was highly nutritious and now it's not. Well, that's that's just glossing over so much of the progress that we've made. And I've really recently, you know, tried to take a hard look at myself in the mirror and say, Dave, no, you were you were kind of wrong about that. Not entirely, right? Some of the things we're talking about right now about, you know, how commercially produced sandwich bread is not healthy for you. That's that's true. Um, however, to go back to the way things were done just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Right. <laughs> it glosses over all the hardships and all of the things that we've done. So how can we use the technology we have and our understanding of what makes nutritious food? How can we combine those two things to mass produce nutritious food for everybody on the planet? Yeah.